Eric Averill, and I'm joined by my partner Brandon Averill today. Disclaimer, Eric Averill and Brandon Averill are the co-founders of AWM Capital. Due to industry regulations, it's essential to explicitly state that investment or strategies mentioned on this podcast may not be suitable for you, and you should discuss your specific situation with a qualified, certified financial planner. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of AWM Capital or its affiliates. For more information, visit AthleteCEO.com. Hey there, Athlete CEO listeners. I'm your host, Eric Averill from Athlete Wealth, and you're listening to the Athlete CEO Podcast. Each week, we aim to bring you world-class interviews with some of the brightest and successful entrepreneurs, athletes, and business minds today, sharing actionable insight on how to get more out of your business, finances, and life. You won't be hearing any vague theory or strategies from us. Our guests have walked the walk and are committed to sharing the best of what they know so you can apply the lessons they've learned. Whether you're an athlete, entrepreneur, or just looking to hear from some crazy successful guests, this podcast is for you. Now enough with the intro. Let's dive into today's show. Hey, welcome to another episode of Athlete CEO Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Averill. Very excited for today's show. We have an opportunity to hear from Eric Cressy, the founder and CEO of Cressy Sports Performance. Eric is considered the leading expert in the strength and conditioning industry for professional athletes, specifically baseball players. Eric has two facilities, the original in Hudson, Mass., and the second down in Jupiter, Florida. And every offseason, the top baseball players, specifically a lot of pitchers, travel down to Jupiter, Florida, relocate their families so that they have the opportunity to train with Eric during the offseason. In 2017, Eric uh, trained both Cy Young Award winners and Max Scherzer and Corey Kluber, which is just a testament to Um, the type of work that Eric's doing specifically with baseball players. Why I'm very excited for you guys to be able to hear from Eric is, you know, in an industry that's littered with hundreds of thousands of personal trainers, Eric was able to carve a niche for himself and really become the expert in a highly competitive industry. And there's a lot to learn from that. Eric also is going to break down for you guys the difference of just being a technician and actually moving to what it takes to become a business owner. Beyond being a business owner and obviously an expert in the strength and conditioning field, Eric's an accomplished author. He's submitted over 50 articles to to peer journals. He's authored five books, and he's a sought-after speaker. He's uh, spoken in six different countries and speaks regularly all over the United States. Uh, Beyond the the professional credentials that that Eric uh, hosts is he's a father of two. He has twin little girls, and his wife is a highly accomplished optometrist. And so we dive into what it's like to have a home where you have two entrepreneurs and, and what does success look like? You know, we dispel the myth of, of work-life balance, really start to talk about priority management. So that's an issue that so many professional athletes and, and you guys as entrepreneurs deal with. So just to hear Eric's thoughts of, of how they navigate that. And, you know, lastly, we dive into what type of advice does Eric have for investing himself being a angel investor and an advisor to a lot of different startup companies? Uh, Eric has great advice of, of the best investments he's made and, and the mistakes uh, that he's made and what he can learn from that. So very excited, uh, a unique privilege to spend an hour with Eric Cressy. So without further ado, let's jump into my conversation with Eric. Well, Eric, thank you so much for uh, for joining us today on the Athlete CEO podcast. I'm I'm super excited to have you on uh, for a few different reasons. First, obviously, you're crushing it from a business standpoint, but uh, you know, over the last decade being in the sports world, it's it's pretty rare that you come across uh, someone who's not only being successful on the business side, but genuinely. Uh, has a ton of integrity and authenticity and and so it's an exciting thing for me to not only interview you from a success standpoint but really someone that I that I respect as a person and look up to is is a dad and a, and a husband so thanks for being on the show I appreciate you saying that thanks for having me this is, this is exciting to do cool cool well where I thought would be a great place to start is is jumping in background um you know, but a little different than a lot of podcasts. I think we can jump on Google and read a lot about you on an about page and 
and uh, Wikipedia and all those good things. But what I really want to get into is is what we can't read about you. And uh, so I spent some time listening to podcasts uh, that you've done. And one, one of the most interesting things of where I'd love to start is you talking about starting Cressy Performance back 2006, seven of this, this dinner at Applebee's where you and Pete yeah. drew up a business plan on a napkin. So mm-hmm. let's start there. Tell us, was the vision to create what you've done and it's just gone perfectly or, you know, walk, walk us through that. Yeah, it's funny. Um, so I left UConn after doing my grad degree in 2005. And, um, you know, when I went to the University of Connecticut, I knew I wanted to do strength and conditioning. I didn't really know that uh, I wanted to do it in this context. I wasn't sure if I wanted to go into research. Um, and actually, our lab at the University of Connecticut was much more like exercise endocrinology. Um, we didn't even have a true biomechanics lab. And it just so happened that while I was there, I caught the strength and conditioning bug. Um, you know, I, I got to observe some varsity coaches in the weight room. And it struck me that way. And, um, you know, but what was interesting was when I was at the University of Connecticut, I was actually much more involved in basketball and soccer. We had four number one teams in the country in our weight room. So um, I had very little exposure to baseball while I was in that college environment. Um, it just so happened when I went to the private sector after graduating grad school that um, some of the first guys that I dealt with were baseball players. Um, you know, I really had four that first off season. I think it was uh, 2006 to 2007. Um, and it just so happened that, you know, basically all four of them wound up going to Division One. Uh, one of them won state player of the year. I think he gave up one earned run on the year, went like 12-0 and on the mound. They won a state championship. My phone started ringing off the hook. Um, and that kind of gave rise to, you know, instead of working as an independent contractor, actually opening um, our own place. Um, but what was really, really interesting is we never set out to be the baseball guys. Um, it was something that, you know, very much happened by accident. I, I'm a firm believer you kind of have to be that that generalist before you're a specialist. Um, and it took us some time for us to feel out our expertise and you know certainly relate it back to some of my own history with shoulder issues and all that. But yeah, I mean our, our first facility, like you said, it was it was business plan on a napkin at Applebee's. Um, if you walked into it, it was like this 3,300 square foot candy cane shape. Um, you walked into the bathroom and you thought you needed a tetanus shot. It was just a <laughs> It was not a, an aesthetic. I mean, there, I can remember some moms walking in when they brought their kids in, be like, "Where am I? What am I doing?" Um, but you know, sure enough, it, it, we were only there like eight or nine months. We actually grew out of it really quickly and expanded to a a larger and more aesthetically appealing. <laughs> but, um, you know, a lot of people think that like I I was some like elite baseball player growing up, or you know that I had you know, some, some kind of exposure to this at a really really high level to put me in this position. And really I was a complete outsider. I played baseball until eighth grade. Um, so when the time came to start working with players, it, it forced me to shut my mouth, you know, kind of do a lot more listening, ask a lot more questions, you know, bury my nose in books and research articles, um, you know, get around physical therapists as much as I could to really learn this. And, um, I think that's actually served us well because I haven't, you know, been drawn to kind of the traditional way of doing it. Um, you know, we've been open-minded to trying new strategies and I, I think the players do appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's, let's stick on that point a little bit about, you know, your commitment to the expertise. I think, you know, it's, I visited uh, Hudson Mass back in, I want to say 2009. So, you know, it's, it wasn't an easy place to get to for athletes. So obviously you were doing something uh, unique and that was working. And, uh, we were talking a little bit early before we started taping of uh, your guys's industry is a little similar to ours on the financial side that you know there's a personal trainer on every corner and there's always my guy and being a, a former professional athlete myself and and having a strength coach since I was 16 years old back in the early 2000s you know there hadn't been anybody in the baseball industry who had kind of taken it by storm as far as saying like, no, we are the authority. And I know that probably wasn't the goal to set out, but you know, why do you, how have you become really the go-to guy in the baseball community? Talk about what it's taken to develop the expertise. Yeah. You know, I think there's a, there's a great quote, um, Randy Hetrick who founded TRX. Um, I remember an article they were talking and Randy's a former Navy SEAL who came up with the idea for TRX while on a submarine. He needed a way to, to get an upper body workout. He threw a strap over a, over a pole on a submarine and did a bunch of inverted rows and TRX was born. And he said, if you want to build a business, solve a problem. And, and that was something that, you know, I wouldn't have known if I had set out, you know, right out of undergrad, Hey, I need to go and train baseball players. I, you know, I was training 
high level triathletes. I had, I had a little bit of everything when I first got going. And what really happened was you know, we started working with some of these baseball guys and we realized, wow, this is a tremendously underserved population. And it, it's because there's, you know, as is often the case, the pendulum goes too far in one of the directions. One, you know, you have people that just get this kind of foo-foo rotator cuff program. Um, you know, they, they're treating all these baseball players like delicate little flowers in the weight room and nobody's really pushing them. You know, the assumption is just, you know, run five miles after a start, throw a bag of ice on your shoulder and you'll be good to go. Um, and, and at the other end of the spectrum, you had a lot of kids that were just kind of being thrown into the, the football fire, right? So it was, you know, clean squat bench and, you know, hope yeah. for the best. And, you know, those are guys that are getting hurt in the weight room and stuff. So, you know, what we did was we, we said, hey, let's, let's, let's take some logic here. Let's build on our experiences of physical therapy. Let's talk about my experiences as a power lifter in terms of the camaraderie in the gym and how we can push guys and get guys stronger. But also let's keep in mind, you know, what their unique demands are and what they need to accomplish. And so really what you find is you, you find this like melding in the middle um, where you can push guys incredibly hard uh, you know, without necessarily injuring them, obviously, if you understand what their unique needs are, what the demands of the sport are. And that's where you fell in. And we're, it, it's gotten, I think, more and more interesting over the years is just how you, you think that you get specialized. And then you realize there are subspecializations across the board where, you know, I was a really, really good shoulder guy when I started out. Like I, I understood that very, very well. And then you get exposed to different disciplines uh, of how to manage the shoulder. Um, you know, like you, you look at what we were doing in like 2008, we were sleeper stretching a lot of guys. And then we got exposed to the Posture Restoration Institute in 2010, and it changed our approach on that. And it's made us markedly better. Um, you know, and then shoulder becomes elbow and, you know, you learn a little bit more of that. And then all of a sudden, you know, there's this, you know, kind of rash of thoracic outlet injuries um, where you have to learn about a new kind of etiology of injury. And then also, you know, how to handle guys after the surgeries, you get to learn, you know, surgical tendencies on, you know, West coast versus East coach, Tommy Johns. Um, so I'm like probably the only like strength addition coach in the world that like, I mean, I, I regularly look at radiology reports. Like I want to know what the radiologist dictated, you know, to a kid who's got an elbow issue. I want to know what his post-op notes are. So I, I definitely, whether it was intentional or not, uh, I, I seem to just be going further and further down the rabbit hole and it's not to work outside my scope of practice just because a lot of that information that I can acquire makes our training programs better when it comes to actually preventing those injuries. So, um, but it all started because of generalist. You know, I had to know anatomy. I had to have exposure to a lot of different sports to appreciate that my skill set was suited for for specializing in this regard a little bit more. Yeah, yeah. No, that's that's fantastic. You know, I think one of the things that I've watched from afar of you working with a lot of our clients is um, where it's been so different is that they'll train at a lot of high performance you know places with with big names but it's not very individualized when you when you really cut it down is they're still trying to fit them into a specific mold and I think just watching what you've done with Noah Syndergaard over the the last two years right of talk a little bit about how important individualization programming is for for clients it's huge um you know I think particularly in a sport like baseball where you're you have to think about it this way, right? Throwing a baseball is an incredibly specific, you know, action, right? We've all seen like the, you know, the animation they did of you Darvish throwing like six different pitches out of the exact same tunnel. Like you want low variability in your release point as a pitcher. You want to do the exact same thing over and over again with different grips. Um, so it's, the, it's probably the lowest variability action on, on the, you know, the course of the, on the face of the planet, but taking it a step further, the shoulder internally rotates at 7,000 degrees per second. It's also the single fastest motion ever recorded in sports. And it comes from these extreme joint angles that we can't even get to during our daily lives. So we have this kind of like, you know, three pronged, you know, uh, kind of component of, of stress that's thrown on our body and, and bodies are craving movement variability. What you realize is that these athletes, they all have their own unique ways of compensating. Um, they have certain things that get them into trouble. So for a guy like Noah, you know, not getting clean layback because his lats were so stiff, that was an issue for him that had to be addressed. You have other guys that may have that kind of exact same problem, but they wind up with low back pain, right? Or they have a lat strain in the muscle belly instead of on the tendinous attachment. So everyone presents uniquely in terms of injury histories, movement faults, things like that. Um, so you really have to, to really dig deep, but you also have to take 
those movement things and you have to relate them to, Hey, how, how, how are you performing on the field? Right. Do you have a hard time throwing a glove side fastball? Are you always sore in your lats after you throw, you know, is it, you, you're missing up an arm side or you, you know, you cutting balls off. What are the, the kind of the, the things that you're realizing is your outcome measures and you sometimes have to work really, really far backwards from them. So um, I think where we've had some success though, is, is not just, you know, the individualization is important, but it's the synergy between what we do manual therapy wise, what we do training wise, what we do on the throwing side of things. Um, and, and putting all those pieces together, I think is really where the, the true power is. And, and I think what's really, really important, at least from an organizational standpoint, maybe this speaks to the entrepreneurs a little bit yeah. more is that you have to all be able to speak the same language. And I think where we, we see players often struggle in pro ball or college or wherever it may be is it's, it's often because the, you know, the different components, whether it's strength conditioning, sports medicine, um, the scouts, you know, the front office, whatever it is, they don't speak the same language. They can't necessarily, you know, powwow on these discussions. So we try to have these very, very involved conversations to, to figure out what the right mix is for each player. Yeah, no, they, I think it just that point I was thinking at the very end was the importance of the synergy and talk a little bit about that as, as being a business owner of, you know, I, a few things stood out to me is you've become this expert in so many different areas, but the humility to say, I don't know to refer out. And I think even in a very gentle way in an industry that can become very frustrating when you're part of an organization that you don't think gets it, or there's turnover and stuff and things like that is, you know, I've never actually heard you say anything negative about any of these people, which is, which is tremendous because if you're a player, you know, with a medical staff or something, it's, 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 it's your career. And so it becomes very frustrating is how have you navigated that working with people that are difficult to communicate with? And how do you take something that's so complex where you're looking at radiology reports and you're looking at these to put it into something that's, actionable during the season for for a player yeah i think you know I, I try to get along with absolutely everybody that's you know that's the way I, my wife would, would call me an eternal optimist is maybe <laughs> one of my my fatal flaws um but that's just who i am i mean it's it's the way i was raised and and i think you know you're always going to get a lot more done if you figure out how to meet people in the middle you figure out what you what you agree on you cultivate relationships and then you you know you build rapport from there it allows you to to work through your differences a little bit more uniquely I think that's always the way to go about doing it. I think, you know, certainly there are challenging dynamics that, that come about. And I, I think, you know, what you have to come back to is that, you know, I work for the players, like at the end mm -hmm. of the day, those are who our clients are and we always have to do what's in our best interest. So we, you know, for, for their career's sake, we want to, you know, be tactful um, in both the way we educate them so that they can be advocates for themselves, but also in the way we, we do outreach to teams, agents, whoever it is that they need us to do outreach for. Um, but I think it always comes back to, you know, you have to, ask yourself, am I doing what's right, you know, in the interest of, you know, our, our athlete in front of us. Um, and I, and I feel like if you do that, you can always sleep really well at night, um, knowing that you did that. Um, and, and it's just, that's a, that's an approach that's, that's guided the way we've attacked things. Yeah. Uh, talk a little bit about, um, I think is just in any businesses, you start to have more success opportunities come up, right? I mean, you're, you're the guy in, in the baseball world, but it's no shortage. I mean, for the entrepreneur, I've heard your name multiple times on Tim Ferriss's podcast, which is like, means you've made it, right? Um, you know, I'm sure you have the NFL guys that want you to train them. It's the high level CEO that, that wants you to train them. It's now all of these opportunities are flooding into you yeah. wanting to, I imagine we'll talk about it later. I'm sure people have approached you of franchising your business and things yeah. like that is how have you handled that? And, and how have you, why have you made kind of the decision to stay in a niche? Yeah. You know, I think you, you, you certainly evaluate, um, you know, everything that you really enjoy doing. Like I, I enjoy, the evaluation slash programming slash coaching process. Like to me, it's like a choose your own adventure book where, you know, everything is unique. So there's never a, like a, a mundane day where it feels just like it was yesterday. Like that process really excites me. Um, I love the idea of like, you know, being a kind of the conductor. Uh, that's what I do well is, is put those pieces together. Um, what's actually really interesting. There's a, there's a great book called the captain's class. Um, and they looked at some of the successful, um, you know, sports teams of all time. They looked at, you know, the Bulls with Jordan and the Celtics with Bill Russell and, you know, Brazil national team with Pele. And what they actually talked about is if you look at some of these teams, 
Um, very rarely over the course of history were the best teams, uh, teams where the, the player was also the captain. Um, and that's something I've realized over the course of time is that, you know, I, I maybe might be the most insightful with respect to assessing and programming. Maybe I'm you know, one of the best coaches on the floor, but um, I can't do that and be the best leader. So one of the things that I've actually really gone out of my way is to, to find people and put them in leadership roles at our facility. Um, and, and I'm the first to admit, I just don't have the time to do that, especially as a dad and all that. So, you know, in, in some of the mentorship roles that our, our facility actually really requires, you know, John O'Neill is our director of performance in Massachusetts. Tim Jeremini is our director of performance in Florida. And those guys do a lot more like mentorship with our internships. Um, you know, they do a lot more of like, you know, looking through applications when people are, you know, are reaching out for those internships or we're, you know, hiring coaches. So we have people in positions to, to help me basically focus on what I'm, I'm really good at. Um, so that's what I've, I've ultimately, you know, kind of been working towards in recent years. But I think what you have to really, you know, recognize is that you always have to be better at saying no than you are at saying yes. <laughs> and that's a really, really hard thing to do. Um, you know, you, you, you get approached with millions of different opportunities. We get asked about franchising in a new location at least twice a week. You know, you'd be amazed how many people are like, yeah, you know, you guys would kill it in Minnesota, you know, or Pittsburgh or whatever it is. And, you know, what they often, I mean, a lot of times, obviously, it's like a dad who just wants something convenient down the road. Um, but, you know, there's certainly other opportunities that come up, whether it's, you know, opportunities with teams or, you know, other sports. Like I've, I've turned down opportunities to do like NBA combine prep from yeah. agents that we work with. And, you know, NBA combine prep literally happens right around the time that spring training starts, right when we actually get like four, four weeks to gather our thoughts before a crazy yeah. college season. So, um, you know, it's just one of those things where I'm not good at it. I'm getting better at it yeah. um, because it's, it's something that's been driven, honestly, more than anything else by family. Um, you know, it is. I know how much, you know, you travel and, and certainly a lot of the agents that we both know, like, you know, you being on the road three to four days a week, the last thing you want to do is like come home and have a bunch of competing demands for stuff that, you know, you aren't at all passionate about when you just want to play with your kids. Um, yeah. So having kids has actually helped me a lot with, with starting to, to push those away. The one that's, you know, the one that's the toughest is um, there are a lot of exercise science professors that give their students projects, go interview a professional. So I've got, you know, over a hundred thousand people on my newsletter list and a lot of them are like college kids. So the second they get that assignment, they email. So I get literally like two requests a day from people who want to interview me for their exercise science projects. And I feel like an absolute jerk every time I turn <laughs> it down because I know what that conversation would have meant to me as an undergrad. If I could have gotten, you know, a guy who was 15 years ahead of me, if I could gotten on the phone with like Charlie Francis or an Alver meal or something like that, but they're just, they're physically isn't time. So you try to pick projects that allow you to have the most reach that allow you to be the most impactful and, you know, maybe have the biggest return on investment for you. Yeah, no, that's, that's great. Share a little bit. Of, it's interesting of the, you know, you would kill it here, open a gym here, I mean, with athletes, right, we're, we're investment managers, so our athletes have lots of ideas, right? But your typical is they want to open a restaurant, they want to start a clothing company, um, or the ultimate one, I want to open a training facility, you know? And uh, the, the training facility conversation is interesting because I think they just assume I'm a big name, I'll be able to just get a bunch of people in and... Um, Talk to me a little bit about the how difficult it is to run a training facility. I mean, there's certainly no day days where it's no different than running a gym or, or sorry, running a like a restaurant or a law practice or something along those lines. So you certainly um, you know, there are commonalities. And at the end of the day, it's managing people. You know, there are going to be days when the roof leaks or. You know, Lauren, we had a day two weeks ago at our Florida facility where one of our neighbors was washing decals off his boat with like acetone solution. <laughs> the smell of like nail polish was so strong that we literally had to like, like delay opening the facility for like two hours because people were going to get sick. I'm like, this is stuff that you, you know, get taught during your exercise science degree or anything like that, but you're, you're to some degree at the mercy of other folks. So there, there are definitely challenges to it. Um, you know, so I think when you look at those opportunities to grow, like certainly we opened in Massachusetts and then, you know, when we uh, were seven years in, we opened the facility in Florida and it was a logical, you know, progression. It was close to spring training complexes. We had a lot of players that were kind of on the ground there that, you know, were extensions of our brand. So it was a way for us to increase our outreach, um, you know, maybe be a little bit more geographic convenient for some people, you know, warm weather was a little bit more appealing for players that wanted to be, you know, working with us over an extended period of time instead of just doing that three to five day check-in. 
Um, you know, but the question is what happens with, you know, going one to two was hard. What happens if you want to go from two to three or two to five or two to 10? And, you know, here's what you have to look at is like, if you look at the fitness industry, right? Um, traditionally, I think franchises, you know, you collect like 6% on gross. So, you know, on a, on a gross return, like let's say a gym goes out and, and crushes it and does a million dollars a year. Like that'd be a really good year for most gyms. Um, I mean, that would certainly put them in the top 5% of the industry. Like for $60,000, like <laughs> do I want to get on the phone for 45 minutes twice a week? Do I want to expose the Cressy name to that level of yeah. you know, potential frustrations and this, that, and the other? So if that's kind of the, uh, you know, the model that you want to pursue, like it's economies of scale. Like you can't go two to three and be wildly fulfilled without having a ton of headaches. If you're going to develop those systems, you really need to go two to 30 right. um, or something like that. And you need to have those big conference calls. And it, it was interesting. I just actually went down and New Balance flew me down to Birmingham, Alabama a couple of days when I spoke um, at kind of like a, a big manager's meeting for Hibbit Sports. And Hibbit Sports is interesting. I don't know if you even know about them, but they're, they're small town uh, sporting goods stores all throughout the South. And they have 1,100 stores, and I think they did 950 million in revenue. And they found this remarkable kind of like niche in the market where, hey, some people want to go online and buy from Amazon, but there's a whole host of people in you know Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana who who might have to drive an hour and a half to the nearest you know Dick Sporting Goods. Yeah. They may want to try on those cleats before they buy it, or maybe they want a name brand glove, or there's just something about it where they don't feel comfortable ordering it online. And they've really carved out like a cool niche. Like they have a bunch of stores that probably do, you know, basically 700 to, you know, 1.2 million in, in revenue. And it really, really works. But in order to make that work, you have to have those 1100 stores. They wouldn't be thriving the way they are in a tough economy if they only had 20 of them. Right. So I think that's the thing people don't realize is you have to spread yourself really thin to go from two to three. So if you're going to do two to three, you better be ready to have a bunch more. And that's not, that's not a goal for me. I'd rather have my reach be through, um, you know, the players we work with doing more outreach with, with seminars, coaching trainers, you know, on how to, how to expand that reach in that way and having a strong internship program. So we spread our wings by having guys that are, are working with professional sports and college sports. And sports. Awesome. To, kind of staying on the, the investing conversation around, you know, athletes is, I think it's like all of us, when you, when you start to have a little success, doors open and opportunities open. And uh, we're seeing this big trend of athletes wanting to get, you know, involved in venture capital or angel investing. Yeah. Um, tell me about your experience, you know, is, is you know, I've read you, you've made some angel investments and, yeah. and have been an advisor on some startups. So, mm -hmm. you know, what was that? What's that experience been like for you? Yeah, I'll tell you. So my first foray into it was actually 2007. Um, so I had you know, put out a couple products and, you know, started to have some cash flow. We had, we had invested in the business, but pretty much put every cent I own and then started to earn some money back off that. And uh, I had a friend that reached out to me about a piece of fitness equipment. Um, he's actually a, a professional sports strength coach. I won't, I won't mention who it is. And he was like, Hey, this, this thing is awesome. He's like, I'm going to, I'm going to have him send you some to try out. Um, you know, they're, you know, a startup, they're, you know, bootstrapping it right now. And they, they just need some, some financial resources to get inventory up. Um, so check it out. Let me know. I think they sent it to me and I loved it. It was actually a really, really cool idea. I'm like, you know, I can get behind this. And, and I had no idea about valuations of a company <laughs> or anything like that. It's like, Hey, it's, um, it's five grand for 1%. I was like, all right. So I, I back then I didn't even, I didn't even stop to think I'm like, all right, that's a 500,000 company. I'm like, all right, what are their sales? I mean like that in hindsight, I'm like, what was I doing? <laughs> so sure enough, I, you know, I send my $5,000 check. I get all the paperwork, this, that, and the other. And uh, six months later, the vice president walked off with 80 grand and blew it on strippers and cocaine. Oh my goodness. So the funny part about it was I loved the product. I still to this day think it's an outstanding product. And as I understand, there were, there were still like 4,000 units sitting in a warehouse in Michigan somewhere. And I couldn't even get my hand on the product. <laughs> I own 1% of it. And I literally, and my, my wife actually has a pair that we got her that she still uses to this day with her training. And she's like afraid to lose it because they don't exist anymore. Oh, what it was for me, it was like, you know, I, I, I only loosely knew of it. And, and after I did that, I mm -hmm. said, you know what? The only thing I'm ever going to invest in are, are myself and things that I know well. Yeah. Um, and that's why I'm, I'm like so impressed with like Justin Timberlake. Um, I, I, that fascinates me. The guy who was a, a singer has become a successful dancer, successful actor, director, producer, yeah. 
he's he owns part of the Memphis Grizzlies. Like, um, you know, people who are successful across disciplines like that to me are awe inspiring. It's, it's very, very hard to do. So what I always just tell people is like the chances of you being successful, successful with a new product in a new market are really low. You either need to take a new product to the same markets because you know that market really, really well, or you need to take an old product to new markets. And, um, you know, those are, you know, you look at New Balance, they're having a ton of success um, in Asia right now. Like you, you can probably find three pairs of New Balance for every pair of Nike in, in like Hong Kong, Kong at this point wow. because they've taken, you know, old products and, and introduced them to new markets. So um, that's what I try to do. I try to only invest in, in things I know well. And sure enough, my best investment ever was putting $127,000, every penny I had into Cressy Sports Performance. Yeah. And I did it in 2007, right before the market tank. <laughs> If I had put it in the market, I would have lost half of it. Instead, I had a business that appreciated and did 10% growth every year for the next eight years. So it was kind of an accidental investment, but looking back, it was one that was really fruitful. Yeah, no, that's helpful. Sticking on kind of that investing in yourselves and we can return back to more, you know, investment stuff. But one of the things that, that handling the wealth and hopefully legacy of clients that we talk about is you know, there's the, there's the unicorn of chasing of, I just want you to double my money and do all this crazy stuff. Right. And it takes an crazy amount of risk to be able to do those type of returns. So the thing we constantly tell them is literally there is nothing that's going to make you wealthier than being the best baseball player. Right. I mean, the, the way that these guys make money and uh, on one of the podcasts that I was listening to you uh, of yours you had made the comment that there was actually an agent that made the comment to you that, you know, Eric, the thing that I love is I feel like you're working on a player's pension while everybody else is worried about them getting drafted. And I just thought that was like, Oh my goodness, this is, that's, that is so true. And just talk about for the athlete of going, looking at themselves as an investment, because I see the off season, I made this as a player. It's, I hear our clients, you know, complain about, oh, you know, I've got a, this off season, the workout, and it just feels like that's, you know, there isn't this investment mentality of understanding the connection of in a sabermetric world, like what's an extra 10 home runs, what's an extra, you know, innings pitched and all those things. Talk to me about just your, your philosophy on that. Yeah, absolutely. I, I don't think you can separate what we do from what you do. If that, if that makes sense, like uh, there are absolutely physiological and biomechanical things that we do that markedly impact the player's earning potential. So I'll I'll give you an example. We had a guy who was in high A that came to us in 2010. Um, He had seen a really well-known orthopedist and he had, uh, he'd had some elbow issues before he first came in. um, And they diagnosed him as having some really considerable calcification on his ulnar collateral ligament. So basically what we know about guys who are like that is it means they had like a low grade or potentially high grade partial UCL injury and that area just calcified over. Um, so their body healed it. And we know those, those areas of calcification are the ones that in many cases down the road explode, right? So, you know, you have this, and this is what we see when we have a 19 year old kid who throws hundred miles an hour, um, who blows out in many cases it, during the surgery, you go and you look at it and there were previous areas of kind of defect on that ligament. Yeah. So some of those guys are ticking time bombs and, and there are dozens and dozens and dozens of those guys drafted every year. Um, so what's really, really interesting though, is, you know, the player had the option of kind of going the conservative route or going with surgery. And I said to him, you know, relatively like good player on a, an upward trajectory. And, and my response to him was like, why would you have the surgery right now? Like, think about it this way. You're asymptomatic. And we know that, and I don't know how accurate this number is. I remember a strength coach in professional baseball telling me that if you have a surgery in minor league baseball, it cuts your chances of making it to the big leagues in half. So I said to him, like, that's a, that's a big deal, but here's the bigger issue. Let's say we do this and it goes great. And you get through the next three years and you get to the big leagues and you blow out. You're going to get a year of service time and 550 grand for rehabbing this. percent. Yeah. So that was 2010. It's 2018 and his elbow is still intact. So, um, you know, that's a, a testament to training his hard work and, you know, s- some luck um, and all those things. But, um, you know, you look at stuff like that and it, it absolutely plays into his earning potential. Like we don't know how it would have been different if he'd had Tommy John back then or whatever it may be. But, um, you know, certainly there, there are situations like that, that that come to light all the time. So, yeah, um, 
I think we're, we're approached a lot, you know, you know, whether it's character references during before the draft or things along those lines, you have to be cognizant of, you know, we'll get calls at draft time about second opinions on MRIs and stuff like that. So um, it's all that impacts players earning potential. Yeah. Um, so you have to be a realist about stuff and you have to at least understand, you know, where like the, where the likelihoods fall on a lot of these things. Yeah. So sticking on that, it kind of a, a two part question, where are players costing themselves money in the off season when it comes to the way that they're handling or not handling training in general? And then during the season, you know, where, where, where are you seeing the biggest mistakes made that, um, that athletes could have the biggest return on their investment? Yeah, I think, you know, players, you know, the, the biggest struggle on my end um, that I've seen over the years is the, the one that drives me bonkers. And, and a lot of times it's driven by the teams. It's the season ends and it's, hey, just take a month off, you know, like don't do anything, go hiking or do yoga or something like that. So the, what it actually creates is a couple different things. The first thing I would say is there are a lot of players, if they do nothing training wise, they will eat horribly, they will drink, they will yeah. make bad life decisions in general. For, for whatever reason, every time they go to the gym, it keeps their life on track. Yeah. Um, so we have a lot of guys that just feel gross and sloppy when they first walk in, and it, it literally you know, shifts things on a, on a moment's notice. So I think there's that side of things. The second thing is a lot of times guys are banged up at the end of the season. There's something fundamentally wrong with them, whether it's you know, they lost 20 degrees of elbow extension, their hips barking at them, you know, they, whatever it may be. And, and really that first month, is a, it's a recharge month, but it's also a great opportunity to get to work on some stuff that may be wrong. And th those are the easy gains. Like it's single leg balance, working on mobility, getting some massage, optimizing nutrition, getting on a regular sleep schedule, really, yeah. really easy things. So uh, honestly, I push really, really hard to get guys back in within a week and a half or so. Say, hey, you know, the season ends, you know, take your three or four days to travel and see family, get adjusted, move to wherever you needed to move. And then even if you're not going to get ready to like train and get going, I at least want to see you early so that we can identify if something's glaringly wrong. Yeah. Um, and I just look at our guys who have been successful over the years, like, you know, the Corey Klubers and, you know, the Tim Collins and like these guys who have, who have, you know, exceeded expectations. Like they're always the guys that are like back the day that the season ends. Like they're not good at taking time off. You know, Noah was the same way. Like he had his week at the end of the season. He was right back into it. So I always try to push for that. But if you think about that over the course of a, you know, a 15 career, year career, like that's a big deal. That's someone who gets an extra three off seasons in if they spend that first month getting to work. Yeah. Um, you know, that's a big issue. You know, they got, you know, the, the hardest one, honestly, and there's no, there's no way around this, uh, off season weddings. Um, you know, I have a, a friend who's in pro ball and he's like, Oh, it's wedding season. He's like, basically the second, the world series ends and we have six weekends where they can have weddings. One of them yep. is giving, which is often off limits. Um, you know, and then there's winter meetings and all that. So there's this kind of mad rush during what should be the heart of the off season. So when you see a guy that, that gets married, you know, usually that's a week, that's a bust. In many cases, there's travel for wedding arrangements beforehand. There's, you know, stuff after the fact. So historically, you know, you'll see guys who have trouble after the off season when they were married, just because they lost in many cases, like four to six weeks. Yeah. Um, you never tell them don't get married. And, but it's just, uh, it's challenging. You know, what you usually have the conversations of, it's like, Hey, if you're going to do this, we're going to train Monday through Thursday. You have Friday through Sunday on your own. Try not to get completely blitzed at this bachelor party. Yeah. Try to make good decisions because you're really trying to salvage what's already going to be a short off season. Yeah. No, there's no doubt about it. I mean, we see that with our guys is it's you, you could chart. Uh, and this is just the reality of life, right? Like you can chart marriage and kids and yeah. we joke and uh, it's uh you have it unique when when you're not just wrestling one, you're wrestling two. We've had a few clients uh, have twins and, you know, just the timing of that. And it's just, it's a reality, right? Is I think the rest of how we operate our lives is going to affect our performance, you yeah. know? It's opportunity cost, right? Yeah. You know, the opportunity cost to having, you know, in our case, twin daughters, like, and staying up all night, giving them bottles and stuff is sleep. Um, yeah. you know, not that, like, think about it. If you're a, you're a pitcher and you're holding a baby and you're throwing arm for three hours a day. Like we see neck pain all the time in baseball guys when they have babies. It's like wow. carbon like, to the point that I like coach guys on how to hold babies. <laughs> uh, it's, you know, it's, it's really an economic cost, you know, concept of opportunity cost. Like, yeah. you know, the one that blows me away is like tattoos on your throwing arm. 
Like I, I know that there are guys that do it. And it's a form of artistic expression. Like, are right, you get a tattoo on your throwing arm? You you miss a week of training. You just drop four hundred bucks that in many cases you don't have, and you expose yourself to a, a risk of infection. <laughs> I was like, there's literally nothing that good that can come from this. Like this can wait until you're retired. But yeah. you know, there are reasons guys do it, and so they have to weigh the the cost and the benefit, just like everything else. But yeah. um, you know, there are millions of examples like that that. Unfortunately, a lot of times, like a 19-year-old, you know, high school draft pick's not going to think those things through, and that's why I'm, I think it's so important to have guys like you and guys, you know, you know, like agents in their world that that hold them accountable and challenge them, and you know, want them to, you know, to, you know, kind of serve a higher standard. Yeah, that's leading right into my thought. Is you know, you and I were on a shared call uh, two weeks ago surrounding a specific player, and you know, that just makes me think of how much you genuinely care about the individual, you know, not only just their performance on the field, but you really care about these guys. And, you know, if you're speaking, and this really applies to everybody, not just an athlete, but, but talk about, you know, surrounding yourself with the right people, you know, maybe even share, you know, what, what mentors have meant for you throughout your life. And, and having people that one of the things I loved that on your previous podcast was the fact that you said one of you think your differentiators is, is that you're direct and you're honest and you're yeah. feedback in. And I just think that that is so key. Talk, talk to that. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think there's a lot of ways you can go. One of the things I would definitely say is that we've always said we train families. We don't just train players. Um, so I, I certainly think that, you know, plays into this discussion a little, little bit. But, you know, in the interest of being direct, um, you know, I, I, I think that's something I, I'm actually not very good at, but I, I've worked really, really hard to, to do it more over the years. But I think it's really heavily predicated on the idea of you have to build that rapport early on. Um, and I think that comes from understanding how to interact with guys, how to ask questions other people haven't asked, um, how to genuinely listen. And, you know, at the end of the day, our, our goal with training is to inspire confidence, right? So you think about this way, you have a friendship with somebody, you know, and, and you've known them for, for 15 years and, you know, you've been through them through the up and the downs. Like they're the people that, you know, they confide in you. They, they tell you things that are important. And certainly for you, there's also a level of like, you know, fiduciary confidentiality that they have that they can fall back on. What's interesting in the strength conditioning field is um, athletic trainers, physical therapists, doctors, they're bound by HIPAA regulations. Strength conditioning coaches aren't. So by, by technically just by the nature of our business, like they aren't, you know, it, it, I'm more likely to share their medical information, yeah. you know, if you really think about it. <laughs> We don't do that, obviously. We, we adhere to HIPAA, you know, heavily. But um, so it just means that to me that we have to work that much harder to gain their trust. We have to really, really show that we care and, you know, and stand on our heads. And, and I, I think there's like this old adage in, you know, the strength of the industry that, you know, it's probably around in other industries as well. It's just, they don't care how much you know unless they know how much you care. Yeah. Um, and that goes in a lot of different. I mean, I've, I've had, you know, big leaguers who have shown up crying because they're in the middle of a divorce, you know, and you spend the first 30 minutes of a training session just listening and, you know, talking things through like that. Um, you know, we've, you know, had situations where, you know, we've had to help guys through pretty crazy stuff. So, you know, I, I, I definitely understand the, like the human aspect of it. And I don't think I understood that at age 22, 23, 24, when I was first coming out, those are the, the soft skills of coaching that I think a lot of people overlook. And I, I mean, I see that with you and the number of players that we, we kind of co-manage, um, you know, very rarely are there conversations all about money. You know, I mean, a lot <laughs> about family, it's about faith, it's about yeah. all those other things that are important to them. But, you know, in one way or another, those things set them up for financial success, training success, baseball success, whatever it may be. So you really have to get to know the person before you can even start to get to know the athlete. Yeah, yeah, no, no doubt about that. So transitioning a, a little bit to to your own kind of, you know, personal life, running a business, being a family guy, um, you know, and I think this is what's really going to speak a lot to the, the other business owners and entrepreneurs of, um, you know, I, I want to cover two things. Number one, I just love to hear your approach on on staying healthy, you know, yeah. so here you are obviously running, running hard. I mean, Anna, your wife is a business owner herself. You know, I think that that's what most people probably don't know. And then you throw twins on top of that, yeah. right? And you guys seem to, I think the illusion of like balance is not real. I don't even yeah. think it's the right goal, right? It's priority management, but yeah. it, it seems like you guys are at least, you know, 
it's at the forefront and just talk about how you've handled your own health and that tension of supporting, you know, Anna and what she's doing is, is making that just as valuable as what you're building. And, and what's that look like to, to have two entrepreneurs in the home? Yeah, it's it's definitely challenging. I what I would tell you is my wife is a rock star uh, on on many many fronts. Um, I'm a, I'm a very very lucky guy, and I, I would say that she supports me far more than I could ever support her. Mm-hmm. I mean, she, I mean, my wife. For, for those that don't know, my wife's an unreal optometrist. Um, she has a really really big um, level of expertise in cornea and contact lens. So, you know, she worked at a, a practice here in Boston, uh, Boston Foundation for Sight, which is world renowned for doing a lot of like. Um, hard lenses. So like Tommy Pham, right? Keratoconus, like my wife sees keratoconus every single day. It's, it's like her wheelhouse. So she would have patients come from India, Australia, all over the place to come and basically, you know, see for the first time. So there'd be people walked out of her office crying because they hadn't seen in years. I'm like, all right, I got a guy 10 degrees of elbow. <laughs> I'm not changing the world. Um, and, and Anna walked away from a lot of that so that we could open in Florida, um, yeah. along with having kids and stuff. So, you know, we, we split our years, uh, between Florida and Massachusetts because our, our daughters are three right now and haven't started school. So we're seven months in Florida and five months here. And so NLC patients when we're back here in Massachusetts for five months. Um, and then she'll help out at the gym when we're down in Florida. So we, we kind of joke, she's the most overqualified you know, <laughs> office manager in the history of the strength and conditioning field. And, oh you know, to her credit, like she has a, a ton of humility and, and loves what she does and loves, I mean, she knows all our athletes and busts their chops on the floor. And, um, you know, we go to games together and she's a huge, you know, baseball fan and a good sport about it. So I'm, I'm very fortunate in that regard. And I, you know, to all the entrepreneurs that would listen and, and the baseball players too, like, you have to make sure that, you know, they know what they're getting into and they're along for the ride. And, and I'll never forget, um, you know, who told me this was Mariana Bichette, Dante's wife. She said, you know, I've, I've been around a lot of baseball players over the years and, you know, they've been married for, for you know, decades at this point. And, you know, two sons that were both first day picks in the draft. And, you know, Bo's absolutely crushing as a high school draft. He was in double A, I think at 20. Um, yeah. She said, all the relationships I've seen, um, you know, the wives either have to be all in or all out. You know, they have to either have their own thing that keeps them occupied and fulfilled, or they have to be like ready to live the baseball, you know, lifestyle. So you look at Mariana, like she's a fitness fiend, like she learned massage techniques, like she is all about healthy food and she's done, you know, so much to, to really help set, you know, Bo and Dante Jr. up for success. And I, yeah. I remember her, that conversation distinctly. And I, I just, as I thought about it, you know, when we've seen guys who have had, you know, challenges on the home front, you know, in many cases it's because they, they didn't have that, you know, that option, you know, it was, it was yeah. someone that was kind of one foot in one foot out. And it's not a criticism of the females because no one has ever really taught them, you know, how, you know, living a life as a major league wife or girlfriend really is. So yeah. it's cool to see more and more of like the, you know, like Lori Ankiel does some stuff with our baseball life and, you know, the wags in real life. And yeah. it, it's interesting seeing how at least now they have like the support system that kind of help them through that stuff. So I think that's, that's absolutely outstanding. We actually had a, uh, Nick Wickren's wife, Ashley Cr- uh, Crosby, now Wickren worked for us at our Florida facility. So we actually had a baseball wife on staff. So I got wow. to learn even more about it. And sure enough, Ashley had her strength conditioning career. She was all about it. And, you know, so she trained a bunch of our pro guys in the offseason. So it was, it was very, very cool to see that. But what I would say in the concept of, of balance and, and you're right, it's, it's about priorities. There was a great, uh, Cheryl Sandberg interview, um, years ago that, you know, was published as an article on, I don't know if it was Forbes or entrepreneur or whatever. She said, uh, basically family work, sleep, fitness, and friends pick three. <laughs> and, and if you think about your life, I guarantee you that's what it is. And, and where we're fortunate, right. Is our friends are often the people that we work with, of you know, 95% of my social acquaintances are people at the gym. So for me, it's very much family, <laughs> it's fitness and it's uh, it's work. So what gets pushed out friends and sleep, unfortunately. So I, I'm not a good sleeper. And, and tr- traditionally when I get sick, it's because I haven't gotten my five hours. It's been more like three hours. So, um, you know, and that's where having twins threw me for a loop and I started drinking way too much caffeine, but you know, we, we eat healthy. Um, you know, we're, we're spoiled in that regard because Anna's a really, really good cook and yeah. you know, we, we make good choices in that regard, but you, you just can't have it all. And you've got to decide what it is. And obviously, you know, some of those things change as time goes on. You retire and work gets pushed out. So, you know, maybe you sleep a little bit more. Maybe you have more time with, 
you know, with friends, whatever it may be. But you're right. It's, it's all about shifting priorities. and You, you can't be everything to everybody. Yeah. Yeah. No doubt. Staying, you know, just kind of on that when you think of being a dad, right. Mm -hmm. And, and being a business owner and and I'm such a believer so much more is caught than taught. You know, it's just, that's how we are is, you know, how do you, how do you wrestle with that tension of being away from home or, or being present? And cause I think there's a ton of value to that. Um, I think it can go on the flip side to people try and demonize work and make it a bad thing. And, and we think it's a good thing, right? It's a gift from God that, that we should be um, highlighting it. Just how do you think about, you know, trying to be present with your kids and, and still crushing it from a business standpoint, you know? Yeah. Just talk about being a dad. It, it's actually, it's probably the hardest thing in my life. Like that, that being present thing, when you know that, you know, entrepreneurship is a 24 hour thing. There's always, especially in baseball, right? You know, guys, their games end, you know, at 1030 at night and they, you know, they want to text or talk or something <laughs> like that. It, you know, and that's the, the other thing I'm sure you deal with it too. It's like, there are a lot of times when, you know, like you have that, you know, 19 year old kid that doesn't realize like when he calls, like you might have like two screaming children. Like you literally can't answer the phone and talk because you wouldn't be able to hear him. So, yeah. you know, those are the ones that can be really, really challenging. You do your best to kind of meet them where they're at, but, um, it's very, very hard. And it's something I'm consciously working on getting better at is, you know, when you walk home or when you walk in the door at home, like you throw the phone in the drawer and you just don't, don't answer it until the girls yeah. go to bed. Um, you know, you, you try not to like flip open the laptop and you know, and I, what I valued more than anything else before and I, now I value more than I ever did before is, you know, early morning time before the girls get out of bed, like yep. five thirty to 7am. And I know you're, you're an early morning workout guy. I usually train a little bit later on, but um, you know, that 90 minutes first thing in the morning with you know a cup of coffee and peace and quiet is huge because if you yep. sleep in, you don't get that. And ultimately your kids are the ones that pay for it. So, um, yep. you know, I, I've tried to do more and more, like making time in my schedule to do the things I need to do, including, you know, obviously spend time with the girls as opposed to trying to find time because invariably when you're finding time, you, you have the laptop at the kitchen counter while you've got a three-year-old pulling at your leg. She wants you to go do a puzzle with her or something like that. And that's the worst when you feel like you're doing both things poorly. Um, So I've, I've, my wife is on me all the time about being better about it. She's a hundred percent right. Yeah. As far as, um, you know, just being in a business owner and entrepreneur of, of taking care of yourself, right? I think yeah. that um, something usually goes out the door like you, you had mentioned in those five things. But, you know, to be a sustainable high performer over a very, very long period of time, you know, I know it's, it's uh, trainings stayed very important to you. And people can say, oh, yeah, it's easy because he's it's like, no, it's not. It, it's just as difficult for you to get in the gym as it is for me or any other business owner. So just if you could give advice to the entrepreneurial world of, hey, if you've only got 30 minutes a day, what are the core things that we should be paying attention to? And maybe what are the, yeah, the, the hurdles or obstacles that we're going to see as we turn, you know, 35, 40, 45, 50 years old that we really need to pay attention to for quality of life. Yeah. You know, owning a gym is kind of like scooping ice cream for a job. Ice cream's awesome for like two weeks and then you get sick of ice cream. So (laughs) the gym can be challenging in that regard because in many cases, like if I work out at our gym after like I'm, I'm done with my work, but the gym's still open. Like you're chatting with clients, like, yeah idiot that goes and like does a set of deadlifts and then grabs the dust buster and go clean cleans like a little dust bunny I see under equipment or something so you know that part is really challenging what's actually I've done that's helped me that I think anybody would be wise to do is if you're an entrepreneur you should have something at home you can do right so getting to the gym is awesome Um, I have a rowing machine at both houses and we have a kettlebell in our garage, just like one 32 kilogram kettlebell that might, you know, you can use for swings, Turkish get-ups, whatever it may be, just something convenient. Uh, my wife wrote in college, so it's right in her wheelhouse. So it, was a, it was a cool birthday present that we both use. Um, mm-hmm. But that thing is huge because you'd be surprised. Like there are going to be those days when you don't have the hour and a half to drive to the gym, <laughs> you know, do your thing, but you can go out and you can thrash, you know, 2000 meters on a, on a rowing machine. Yeah. And, the worst in my case seven minutes 39 seconds of your (laughs) and it's 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 awesome um 
you know, and, and that part is huge. So I think sometimes you have to make exercise more convenient, whether it's getting out and sprinting, um, whatever, maybe it helps to have accountability, right. A training buddy who, who jumps in on the madness. But, um, you know, I think the biggest thing you're going to deal with, like, in you know, maybe probably your, your prime audience here is after 30 mobility, just, it falls off really quickly. And whether that's because we're sitting at desks and on planes, you know, sitting in cars more often, um, you know, that, that tissue you have is much less like filet mignon and a lot more like beef jerky. So, uh, you have to spend a lot more time on, you know, invest in massage, uh, get on a foam roll and move it around, put some mobility work in at the start of every training session, make sure you're training, you know, through full ranges of motion. That stuff really, really does pay off. That's the, that's the biggest thing I've noticed. Um, you know, over the course of the last probably five years or so is that, you know, the, the amount of mobility work I was doing before to maintain it isn't nearly as enough. I need more frequency and, and a, a targeted effort there. So it's, it's hard because you usually have to pull back from somewhere else if you want to devote that extra time for it. And mobility is one of those things that it's like, you never want to do. Even when I was, yeah. you know, training as an yeah. athlete, it's the prep work. And when you get done with the workout, the less the last thing you want to do. Exactly. Uh, it's like cleaning the gutters, you know, yeah. <laughs> you know, if you don't do it, something bad's going to happen. Yeah. Is there, is there any, uh, and maybe it's uh, one of the books you've written or something. Is there any resource on kind of what the audience could turn to for mobility of some exercises or. Yeah. So I've got a ton of stuff actually on my YouTube page. It's youtube.com backslash ecressy. So I've got a bunch of kind of like, um, you know, I have like, I think there's one video called like must try mobility drills. There's like four of them, which is, you know, stuff that you can do really quickly. You know, we have our foam rolling series up online too. So okay. stuff they can check out. Awesome. And I'll, I'll show, you know, yeah. I'll throw links in the, in the show for that for sure. Perfect. Um, just a few things I know, I know, yeah. uh, your your time is limited oh, I, I super appreciate it but uh a few questions that we've just been asking all of our guests um you know are first how has a specific failure and apparent failure set you up for later success i mean i know uh, our road is littered with failures uh, amongst the success yeah. so are there a few that that stick out to you yeah absolutely um you know it's funny i was i was a tennis player in high school I was a pretty good tennis player and got recruited to play in college. And my shoulder was so bad basically in 2003 and kind of, I didn't play an undergrad because of it and basically got to my wits end where it was like, you know, waking me up at night, all that. And so the summer of 2003, finally a doc said, Hey, it's time for surgery. You got a, a pretty nasty cuff tear in there. And, you know, it was interesting. It was kind of like a weight lifted off my back where it's like, I feel like I've tried everything. I've gone to multiple physical therapists, haven't gotten better, you know, tried activity modifications and all that. And, so what happened was right after he diagnosed, he, he basically gave me that order. Um, we decided, all right, I'm leaving for grad school. I'm going to come back. I'm going to do this surgery in December over my winter break. So I've got, you know, my four weeks of mobilization, all this stuff. So I, I went to grad school, totally expecting to have surgery in four months. Got to the University of Connecticut, got around some smart people, um, found a new manual therapist and just buried my head in books um, and read as much as I could about shoulder function and played around my training, did some different rehab stuff on my own and Sure enough, I called him on, on Halloween day, I remember, and, and canceled the surgery. So, you know, a, a huge setback and literally like five to six years of chronic pain in my shoulder wow. um, you know, was a setback that, that effectively, you know, looking back, kind of set me up for this career I have. Because I, I figured out like, you know, hey, it's, that was 2003, it's 2018, I still haven't had that shirt, shoulder operated on. Um, at some point, I'm sure I will. Uh, <laughs> but no, I can, I can long toss with our guys. I can do just about everything except for back squats. So it was a it was a, a miserable five years, but it was something that actually put me in a really good position to be the shoulder guy much down the road. Wow. Wow. How about, uh, as far as, you know, you, you've referenced books, you've referenced just your commitment to expertise and, and to knowledge. Have there been any, you know, mentors in your life that, that stick out or, you know, and it could be mentors from afar of, of yeah. certain people that you follow. Who comes out, who's, who sticks out to you? Yeah, certainly. You know, I think it always helps to, you know, hear from guys who have, who have walked, you know, in the shoes that you're walking in. Like if you're a big league pitcher, right, you're going to relate really, really well to a guy who pitched in the big leagues. You know, you look at guys like Rick Ankeel or Bob Tewksbury who are really able to relate to players well because they, they lived at that level. Um, you know, for me, my mentors have been in the fitness industry. A guy like Alan Cosgrove was, was super impactful for me in terms of teaching us how to kind of incorporate the semi-private model. Uh, Pat Rigsby is a close friend. I can, 
you know, kind of call anytime and, you know, kind of bounce ideas off of. He's a, a really good listener and doesn't try to pigeonhole you into one specific model. Um, you know, he kind of meets you where your business is at, helps talk you through things. So there are a lot of guys like that. And I, you know, I, I, I'm fortunate to have a really good business partner, um, Pete Dupuy, who's been with me since day one in, in Massachusetts. And then Shane, uh, Ryan, Brian Kaplan are my business partners in Florida. So I, I have people like that who, you know, serve as mentors every day because, you know, it, it's always good to have, you know, somebody that you feel like is always rowing in the same direction as you, where you, yeah. can, you know, you can bounce ideas off. And in Massachusetts, we, we joke, you know, I'm kind of like the ideas guy. I'm, I'm the gas pedal. Pete kind of pumps the brakes and, you know, brings us back to reality and, um, you know, helps with implementation and stuff. So I think you always have to have those people. Um, but yeah, I've been, I've been spoiled and I've, and I've had great mentors on, you know, the actual training side of things. Chris West at UConn, Tina Murray, who was at UConn, who's now at Louisville, um, were great to me. Um, you know, I've got him Daryl Conan in my hometown. So I've, I've been spoiled to be around some really, really good people. Yeah, that's great. Um, if you were given advice to a smart, driven athlete who's transitioning off the field into kind of the, the second career, whether this is you know, maybe a, a college kid that, that plays D1, doesn't get a chance, or it's also a major leaguer who has, you know, essentially financial success. Money's no longer an option, and his career's over at 38 years old, and he's sitting there going, I have no idea what I want to do. You know, what advice would you give them of when they say, I don't know what I want to do, but I think I want to be an investor or I want to get into yeah. the business world? What I would say is – the idea of follow your passion is garbage. And and actually I, so I posted this quote. There was a great quote from a book called the four, the hidden DNA of Amazon, Apple, Facebook, and Google. It says people who tell you to follow your passion are already rich. Don't follow your passion, follow your talent, determine what you're good at early and commit to becoming great at it. You don't have to love it. Just don't hate it. If practice takes you from good to great, the recognition and compensation you will command will make you start to love it. And ultimately you will be able to shape your career and your specialty to focus on the aspects you enjoy the most. Wow. You don't want to follow your passion. You want to build substantial career capital, right? And that's what it really takes. And um, as I look back on the success we've had in the career, I, you know, I, I wasn't necessarily inherently passionate about shoulder. I just had a bad shoulder and I learned a lot about it to get me out of pain. What I realized was that marketable skill was very applicable in the baseball community. And the more and more I got around it, I'm like, man, this is fun. I'm good at this. You know, I like watching baseball. I, when I was a kid, I taught myself to read with baseball cards. So it, it made sense. And, you know, that's what happens. Like the whole idea of follow your passion and there are you know, the, the, the annals of, uh, of arch of, uh, entrepreneurship failure loaded with people who followed their passion had horrible ideas that just didn't work out. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I can be passionate about pa- basketball. It doesn't mean I'm going to play in the NBA. Um, so I think we have to really, really separate ourselves from our marketable skills and our passion. Yeah. And so for, for an athlete, what's, what's that look like when I've had a skill set that's only been on the field, right. Of, you know, what does that mean? You know, and, and what I think I'm trying to lead yeah. the witness into is talk about the work yeah. ethic and the, the humility that it's going to take to, exactly. you know, get into the next level. Yeah. That, and that's the biggest thing. Um, you know, if you look at how we hired our facility as a frame of reference, we hire based on competency and based on fit. Hmm. Um, and, and for us, you know, if you look at our Massachusetts facility, I have a math major on staff. I have a criminal justice major um, one of our best coaches ever had one semester of college. Um, my business partner, Brian in Florida, had one year at Notre Dame. He was a, a stud pitcher who went to play there and wound up – he had thoracic outlet before it was cool to have thoracic outlet. He's <laughs> one of the best baseball strength edition guys on the planet. He he gets through to players like you wouldn't believe. He's he's absolutely phenomenal. Um, so I, I think a lot of times it's those those experiences you've had – um, you know, the, the way that they've shaped you, your ability to kind of get through to people, you know, a lot of times the, the players that have failed are the ones that, that, that wind up being the best coaches. Um, you know, would you rather learn a curveball from a guy who it came to really easy? Or would you rather learn a curveball from a guy who had to like struggle for years with five different grips and, you know, 
and different mechanics to throw it. Like those are the guys you want. So um, I hire based on fit above all else because I know I can teach people to be competent in our system, but it, it definitely helps for them to build on what they have. You have hard work, you have a knowledge of the game. Like it makes sense to, to leverage your abilities in baseball and your idea of the, the work ethic it takes to be successful, you know, in, in a second career. Yeah, that's great. All right, two two questions left. What's right. the uh, what's the best or most worthwhile investment that you've personally made? And it could be time, it could be money, it could be effort. Yeah, um, you know what I'll say is it was uh, it was the investment in my business. Yeah. You know, looking back on it, you know, I mentioned kind of the dollars and cents of it, but it was a chance to you know take money and invest in something that I understood and I believed in and you know I, I knew my work ethic so in hindsight it was it was very accidental that it was timed that way um but you know it was it was definitely a good move yeah and uh so the last one which is which is my favorite is uh I think there's the quote that it's it's not that what you uh don't know that gets you in trouble it's what you what you think you know that just saying isn't true is what gets you into trouble so what are some of the bad recommendations that you're consistently hearing in the industry that that athletes should absolutely run the other way from ooh i mean you can probably speak this never loan money to your uncle who has a crazy real estate idea <laughs> it's kind of a common one i mean there's yeah. those over the years um you know, I, I think the you know the challenges also is I think there are a lot of players that just don't realize um, you know how exposed they are you know to if you make a bad decision like you're held to a higher standard and stuff. So um, particularly with respect to social media, you'll hear you know good people who you know say the wrong thing on social media and it comes back to bite them in the butt really really quickly. So I think there's just there's more accessibility to high level athletes than there ever has been before. Um, and I, and I think, you know, what's really interesting is if you, it's, it's a little bit generational. Um, like if you look at like, you know, like we have Max Scherzer with Corey Kluber, um, you know, Lance Lynn, some of those guys who have been around the game, you know, considerably longer, like they're, they're kind of over social media, even like Logan Morrison, like Logan was one of the most like present guys on Twitter back in the day. And I mean, if you go on, he's, he's playing for the Minnesota twins right now as a DH and he's still listed as a Seattle Mariners outfielder from 2014 (laughs) on Twitter handle. Like, I don't think he remembers his login. So um, I think you're seeing more and more mature players who are recognizing that, you know, it leaves them exposed and it's a distraction. So they just kind of like tune out social media. Whereas there's a whole other generation of guys that love it. They're all over it. They're glued to their iPhones and, you know, they're constantly updating across multiple platforms. So it's, there is, that's an interesting kind of like, um, you know, fork in the road that different guys have taken in different directions. Um, but I, I think, you know, some of those younger guys do need to be really cognizant of how exposed they are because um, it's, it's different than it was in years past. Yeah. And I think it's, you know, I, it, there's the, it's not bad advice. I think it's the advice, right. If they're trying to build their platform and, yeah. and I think it's, it's true that, yeah, you've got Gary V out here saying this stuff yeah. and, but as a professional athlete, you're also in this unique thing that your best investment to create generational wealth, right, Absolutely. is to be the best baseball player, you know? Yeah. And then the platform stuff, it's nothing less than that. But, man, yeah. that should never become a distraction to you. You know, it's yeah, – that's, that's the scary thing about it is, you know, if you, if you chase two rabbits, both get away. Yeah. Um, and I, you, you definitely have seen scenarios where guys spread themselves thin with, with stuff like that. And, um, you know, you make your money on the field. That's the absolute truth. Yeah, no doubt. Well, great. Well, I really appreciate obviously the time that you gave uh, gave here. Is lastly, is there anything that you'd ask of our audience? I mean, I know you're constantly putting out content that uh, that I consume and uh, attempt to uh, to implement. But what are you working on now that that's most exciting that we should know about? Well, I'm just gearing up for another crazy summer of uh, of training college guys here in Massachusetts. But um, no, if anybody has questions, I'm I am on social media, so it's just cool. Eric Cressy on both Twitter and Instagram. Um, don't be shy about reaching out. I'm always happy to help out with questions. Awesome. Well, thank you very much. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening to the Athlete CEO Podcast. I hope you enjoyed our show today and are ready to take action on the advice from today's episode. Our goal with the Athlete CEO podcast is to make it the go-to resource for athletes and entrepreneurs looking to take their game to the next level. Love the show? You have any suggestions on how we can improve? We'd love to hear from you. Send us an email, tweet, and share your thoughts. We do our best to read every single one. We'll see you next week with another world-class episode.